Hey guys, and welcome back to the Image Junkies podcast with me, Christian Parkinson. This is the podcast for news and documentary filmmakers, especially news cameramen like myself. Today's episode, believe it or not, is episode 31. I never thought we'd get this far. I don't know how, how many more episodes I'm going to get around to doing because it's becoming quite tiresome for a couple of hundred downloads per episode. But hey, keeps me busy. And it's a good one today, or at least it's very cerebral, very thoughtful with someone much more intelligent than I am, an old pal of mine called Gavin Campbell. He's studying for a master's looking at PTSD amongst journalists, which I think is really, really interesting. He's an old cameraman mate of mine and he really knows his stuff. So do have a listen, do comment, and do tweet and share the link for this podcast if you can. I started off by asking Gav just to introduce himself. So um, I, uh, well, you, you and I know each other from the BBC, where I have always been freelance, but I worked as a freelance shoot edit um, and sometime producer for BBC News. But like um, most freelancers, I'm sort of jack of all and master of none. So whilst I worked in news and current affairs, um, I also worked on sort of longer form, slightly adventury reality television for um, the Discovery Channel. Um, and before before that, I cut my teeth in um, corporate uh, work for what was called the Central Office of Information, which was like the government comms department. Um, uh, so they made public service uh, announcements and, and adverts. And I specialised in armed forces recruiting. And that was ultimately what got me into working in hostile, remote, um, austere environments and uh, and with the sorts of people that frequent those places. So on paper, um, like any freelancer, it's, uh, it's a very higgledy-piggledy career um, and trying to make sense of it um, is only something that you can do you can do afterwards true um, and what are you doing now then Gavin because um, I think you're doing something quite interesting yeah, so I put down the camera um, back in September this year and um, I've gone back to university as a um, mature student, um, as you can tell from my voice, very mature man that I am. Um, and So I've gone back to uh, King's College London um, uh, to study uh, for a master's in war and psychiatry at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience there. And really, for me, it was a, a chance to spend a year bringing together uh, my academic background so you know when when I was a young younger impression more impressionable young man um, I uh, studied psychology at university um, and it's a sort of an interesting chance to take a bit of a break from work um, and see if I can make sense and bring some of the ex uh, the experiences um, that I've had over the years um, and reflect on them in a slightly more academic um, environment, and uh, and 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 see what comes out the other end. And are you? Is your? Um, it's a master's, right? Sorry, you said a master's. Yeah, it's an MSc. So it lasts a year. Um, I've I've made the decision to to do it full time because my brain, frankly, doesn't work as quickly as it as it did when I was twenty one. So, um, so there's been quite a lot of catching up uh, to do. Um, everything's online now. It's amazing this internet thing. Uh, so yes, so this will take me to uh, to September uh, this year, and then we'll see what happens afterwards. And what made you decide to make that change then? Because that's a pretty big change. Have you always been fascinated by trauma and sort of PTSD and so on, or is it something you've experienced in your own life? What made you What made you want to get into this area? 
I mean, I think it's a bit like, it's a, it's a bit of everything, isn't it? I mean, ultimately, you know, whether you're a, a kit junkie or, you know, a, 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 an image junkie, if you, if you want to use that phrase, um, you know, we, we tell stories. And I think one of the, the privileged, uh, the, the big privileges of, of the job that, that we do in whatever form it is, is that we get to experience other people's lives and we get to tell their stories. Now, sometimes those stories are um, joyous and fun, but more often than not in, in news and current affairs, they're, they're quite heavy. Um, and, you know, I think the best journalists, whether you're the one with the microphone or the one lugging the camera around, uh, are interested in people and are interested in what effects experiences have had on people and one of the things that I found very dissatisfying about news is that when we pack up and go home other people's lives carry on and it's impossible to keep in touch with people and I'm sure you know like like you you know we we, we keep in touch with with the odd contributor but but actually the story doesn't stop and people's lives don't stop and people's narratives don't stop and if they've had a traumatic experience that is gonna you know it, that can potentially impact on them and I think for me, it was that time in a career where I'd done a lot of things that I'd wanted to do. I was really, really lucky. Um, and it just seemed the right time to maybe take a little bit of a backward step, a little bit of a time to reflect on what I'd done um, and what other colleagues have done and see it through a different prism. And and certainly, you know, trauma and PTSD, you know, that... <sighs> It's, it's in the, the headlines just now, and it's something that has affected colleagues. It has affected um, friends. And it's a very privileged position to be able to sit in an academic context and have that uh, sort of distance, if you like, and that academic rigour, but also be able to bring some personal experiences, whether they're direct personal experiences or experiences of other people, to bear on, on ultimately what we're studying and discussing. So it seemed the ideal time to kind of just take a little bit of a, a, a sideways um, step, whether that's a pause um, and I go back to doing what I was doing before. We'll see whether it leads to something else. I, I don't know. But the time was right to uh, to try and make sense of things and, and go a little bit deeper than I think sometimes the rigours of, of daily news allows us to. I mean, just taking a step back a little bit, I guess, because maybe not everyone is aware of what the actual definition of PTSD is. I mean, how is it officially described? So... So PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, it's um, it's a clinical diagnosis. So we have to be quite clear that even though it's kind of entered common parlance, a bit like, you know, autism has or OCD or bipolar, you know, people sometimes describe themselves as being a little bit OCD. You know, it, people talk about being traumatised or having a little bit of PTSD. It is it is a serious condition. It is a, a clinical definition. Um and there's a bit of a, a sort of um, sideways uh, deviation. Psychiatrists and psychologists use two main frameworks. And ultimately, these are just big books that say here are a list of disorders and, 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 and what's... Um, you know, what, what constitutes those disorders. And the two that they tend to be used are something called the DSM, which is a sort of American thing, and the thing called the ICD, which is, is more European. Now, in terms of academia, we tend to use the DSM. And PTSD has changed over time. 
um, interestingly. So it's not the definition hasn't um, it hasn't remained stable. So it was first introduced as a thing uh, in 1980. Um, before then, uh, there were lots of other syndromes um, that bore some resemblance to it, but. 1980 was the first time that something called PTSD appeared in this in this official um, manual, and that was DSM three. And we're now on DSM five, and there's a number of criteria. So the most important criteria, and what makes PTSD sort of Im- different from other disorders, is it's defined by an experience. So you must have had an experience which is exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury or sexual violence, um, either by directly experiencing it, witnessing somebody um, as it occurred, to, and, and that's somebody to whom you were close, uh, learning that those traumatic events occurred to a close family member, um, or um, experiencing repeated and extreme exposure to the sort of the adverse details of traumatic events. Um, you know, we, we might speak about this in a bit, but recently there was a case in America where a journalist successfully sued um, the, uh, the Age newspaper because they were a court reporter and they were repeatedly exposed to traumatic details of cases. Now, if you've experienced those things then you can potentially have post-traumatic stress disorder. And PTSD, therefore, is then defined by a number of symptoms. And these are things like avoidance, um, hypervigilance, anger, irritability, emotional numbing, emotional dysregulation, so your emotions are all up and down all over the place, interpersonal difficulties, difficulty sleeping. And one of the sort of most famous ones, if you like, or well-known, is this idea of flashbacks or re-experiencing. You have to have had those symptoms for at least a month after the event. If those symptoms are occurring within the month after an event, it's not called PTSD. So they have to endure for a certain time. And certainly some clinicians I've spoken to, and I'm not a clinician, will say that really they don't consider it to be PTSD until those symptoms have lasted for about three months after the event. And the important thing is that ultimately all these symptoms must have an adverse impact on your life. So if you're living with them absolutely fine, then is there any reason to get help? They might not be very nice. So it's that idea of an adverse impact. Um, and, and, and that has changed over time. So the criteria for, you know, it, it used to be that it had to have just been directly threatened death towards you. And as you can see, that's expanded over time. What's interesting for us, if you like, as media practitioners, is you cannot, um, the exposure to details or traumatic events uh, cannot be via electronic media. So watching something on a screen um, or uh, television or movies or pictures, that does not count as a traumatic enough experience to give you PTSD unless that exposure is work-related. So ultimately, if you watch something on television and you watch it for fun and you get traumatised by it, you don't have PTSD. If I watch the same thing, but I'm getting paid to watch it, then I can have PTSD. So ultimately, these definitions do change and and are fluid over time. And no doubt, by the time we get to DSM-6 in however many years, we will see a change in how it's defined um, in the future. I mean, it all sounds very complicated, really, for what I think of as something quite simple, which is like, 
are you feeling a bit fucked up after seeing something nasty? Do you know what I mean? That's kind of how I think of it in, in my mind. It sounds like it's become very technical and, uh, you know, like you have to tick a lot of boxes to sort of prove yeah, you've got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're. I think. I think there's something in that, and I think you know, I, a cynic would say there's a no-brainer that seeing something traumatic traumatizes you, and it should. And actually, you know, PTSD symptomology and the and the checklist, if you like, for diagnoses says, yeah, absolutely. You see something, you probably should feel a bit fucked up after it. You should have or, you, you know, having trouble sleeping or, you know, being emotional or being hypervigilant or whatever is a perfectly normal stress reaction. There is absolutely nothing abnormal about that. What is abnormal is whether or not that endures over time. And if that's enduring over time and that is adversely impacting the life of you or those around you, then yes, you have a problem something has gone wrong, something needs to change, because that could lead to some other maladaptive behaviour. So, you know, you could be drinking excessively, for example. You could be behaving violently towards other people. So it's that idea of it's a normal reaction that endures over time. But I think you're right. I think the more that we speak about it and the more that you see it in the media, however you want to term it, you know, it's this idea that perhaps the understanding's been lost and any sort of stress reaction to potentially a traumatic experience is somehow seen as strange or unusual or you know it's 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 medicalized and and oh my god you've got something you've got something wrong with you it's it's interesting that actually you know PTSD is very rare it's it only affects you know, single percentages of the population in their lifetime. And a, a World Health Organization survey estimated that about 70% of, a, of the population of, you know, the world and, and countries in general um, have suffered, have experienced some sort of event that would qualify them for PTSD, yet only, you know, about 3 to 8% of people in the general population actually develop it. So trauma, a traumatic experience... Very, very common. We've all been in car crashes, had loved ones die, seen bad things, had bad experiences. PTSD, in its in its medical form, actually quite rare. Okay, well, well, that leads me on to the next question then, which is kind of specifically looking at journalists. Um, you know, or you use the term media practitioners. I guess that's a bit broader. Let's go with that term. Um, would you say, as a group? we are more likely to um, experience PTSD or, you know, to be in these situations? I mean, I don't know what the statistics say, but is it a, a group that is potentially uh, at high risk of getting PTSD? And if so, why? Yeah, so I've seen um, some studies quoted that have put the, the lifetime prevalence rate, so that the idea of, you know, over somebody's lifetime, how many people over every lifetime have, 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 have experienced it. Um, I've seen the prevalence rate put at as high as about 28% of journalists, which is phenomenally high. I mean, that's over a almost a third, a third of journalists. Now, actually, I, I don't know if that's true. I would say that in reality, we're probably slightly closer to first responders who are, you know, around about the sort of 10, 11%. So potentially 
below soldiers but slightly higher than the general population because we are being exposed either directly or indirectly to ultimately human suffering. So, you know, news isn't nice. We don't really do good news. We are going out and we are dealing with people who, to whom bad things have happened. Now, you know, it's like Icarus. You fly clo too close to the sun, you know, something's going to melt and you're going to fall back to Earth at, at one point. I, you know, there's one quote that comes up a lot, which is, you know, you can't wade through water without getting wet. If you're constantly exposed to human suffering and misery, that is going to affect you. And it should affect you. Um, you know, recently I, I was at an event with uh, a, a long-standing um, BBC journalist who had worked um, on the foreign beat for, for a long time. And he was speaking to a lot of young trainee journalists. And yes, of course, there's the appeal to go and do the foreign bang-bang stuff because, hey, let's face it, body armor is very slimming and we all look quite good in it. Um, and it's certainly great for my figure. Um, and, 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 you know, and he, he warned them about it. He said, yeah, look, if you're going to do this time and time again, it will mess you up. It should mess you up. So I think we are aware of that, and I think we're becoming increasingly aware of that, and we're becoming increasingly aware of the signs. But I do think that we shouldn't necessarily focus on the people that go and do the adventurous bang-bang stuff and then write books about it. As, as I mentioned, you know, a, a, a journalist in, um, in Australia has just won, I mean, tens of, sorry, $180,000 in compensation from the Age newspaper because of repeatedly being exposed to traumatic events as a crime court reporter. So they weren't going out and being shot at. They weren't being blown up, but they were having to sit through the most horrific details day in, day out. And that daily grind is something that's worrying. And not just for PTSD, you know, higher rates of depression, higher rates of anxiety, higher rates of alcoholism, higher rates of burnouts. You know, burnout is a big problem. We've all felt burnt out at times, but, you know, burnout is a recognised phenomenon. It's not a medical phenomenon, but it is a, a recognised work and sort of sociological phenomenon. So I think we're getting more aware of this, that actually we can't always be detached. And at some point we do have to process what's what's happened to us. And I think we're also in a unique position where, you know, we're, we're, we're taught not to intervene. Our whole point is to say, no, no, we're just here to watch. And actually there's evidence that suggests that emergency responders, for example, do certain emergency responders do better than others because they are trained to intervene. They're trained to carry out action and their training takes over. Whereas, yeah, you know, we get HIFA and all that kind of stuff, but Really, when you've got to make those moral decisions about do you intervene or not, you know, that adds another another element as well. So, you know, I think the awareness is good. I think the awareness is great. And, you know, let's face it, this is a very, very live issue for a lot of us and a lot of our colleagues. Yeah, true. True. You know, I mean, you might, you, you know, let, let's face it. How many, how many people do we all know where we think, gosh, you know what? They're just not right. They're just, they're just a bit messed up by what they've gone through. And I think there was a time where actually that was lauded. That was seen as a kind of badge of honour. You know, you know, being mad, bad, and dangerous was 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 fantastic because my God, you've earned your stripes. Well, that's bullshit because it messes your life up. And actually, if you know, it is a job at the end of the day. And we'd all like to come out of it with our souls and our bodies intact. I mean, one one thing that I sometimes think, tell me if, if this has any basis in the science or not, 
is I sometimes think that as journalists, uh, one thing that's problematic is we're not part of a sort of... I mean, there is a camaraderie amongst journalists, but it doesn't really go that deep. Whereas if you're like a para or you're a first responder, you've got your crew around, you know, you've got your guys who understand, who get it, um, you know, who you can talk to about this stuff. But I sometimes find as a as a journalist, like, you know, we fly in, we do a story, we fly home and the next morning, you know, you're, you're back at home. There's no decompression. There's... Um, there's not that sort of sense of, be- at least at least for me anyway, there's not that sort of sense of belonging to something bigger, something important. Like, and I think, and I think that's getting worse. You know, I and and I am going to call out the BBC here because they are the only news and current affairs organisation that that I've worked for for a substantial period of time. They moved to a new glitzy multi-million pounds building. There was no crew room, so where do the crews sit? So that idea of doing a job and never seeing your colleagues, never seeing people who do exactly the same job that you do, is appalling. And it's all very well that we put in these ideas of trim, trauma and risk management is something that's very big just now, this idea of watchful waiting, so training people to see the signs and this kind of peer support network you know what, why not just give them a space where they can actually interact with people? Why not give them a, why not give people the time off after a deployment? I remember coming back from one deployment that, you know, was slightly fruity and um, went to see the person who was supposedly responsible for my welfare. Uh, They looked at me like they'd never seen me before, even though they'd known me for about five years. They went, how was it? I said, it was fine. They said, great, do you want to do it again? I was like, yeah, of course. Now, I was high on adrenaline. I hadn't slept for two weeks. My head was still somewhere in the Middle East. That's not the questions that you should be asking. The question you should be asking, you know, do you want a coffee? I'll check up on you in a week. And actually, you know, I find it shocking that when a a former colleague of mine, several years after a shared deployment that we'd had, told me that they'd gone to seek some assistance. And it wasn't the fact that they'd gone to seek assistance it was the fact that I hadn't known and I hadn't asked how they were, but we'd never had the opportunity after we'd come back to see each other. All of our interactions were spontaneous. They were in a corridor, in a big building, with limited time. The pressures that we have day-to-day in terms of filing, moving on to something else, working across radio, television, online, multiple languages, you know, it... it all those pressures mean that we don't have that space. We don't have that time. And actually, we were the very people that should have been speaking to each other. We, you know, we should have just shared, had that space to share those moments. So I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, generals talked about, you know, esprit de corps and how that prevented shell shock or whether or not it did pre- prevent shell shock and, and, and that idea of sort of bands of brothers and you know bands of sisters. Um, and I think there's something, there's, there's a lot to be said for that. You know, a bit of kindness and a bit of time is actually really, really, really helpful. And you can implement all the systems and all the frameworks that you like, but on a personal level, I do think that's speaking to the fact that you're an organisation and, you know, many organisations do this, are kind of calling out the fact that they've got a problem and they've not been able to fix it 
because of a lack of downtime or 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 cohesion. And we're a weird bunch. You know, we 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 compete with each other, but we help each other out. It's a very strange environment. We're there trying to scoop each other. We're there trying to, you know, get one up on each other. And I think we've had a kind of macho culture for a long time where, as I say, seeking help and being a bit damaged, sorry, not seeking help and, and being a bit damaged is seen as a, as a badge of honour because, hey, you've earned your stripes. Well, you're not used to anyone that way. Uh, yeah, no, fair point. I mean, whenever I've, uh, you know, been in situations that are, as, you know, in your words, a bit fruity, I find all I want to do is have a beer with the guys who were there with me, um, you know, and, and just have a good old chat, get it out of my system and then move on. And I find that really helps. But you don't always get yeah. that opportunity. To no, you, you very rarely get that opportunity now. You very rarely get that opportunity. It's back on a plane and, and, and get home and, and get on to the next thing. Or, you know, if you're lucky. Um, and I think, you know, you're... you're I, a big military history um, fan, you know, you, 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 yeah, let's go, let's go with fan. Um, but we all, we all know geek. Um, you know, you, you're well aware of the idea of decompression where, you know, soldiers post tour go somewhere and, and, and let off steam. Now the evidence is slightly mixed on from a, from a academic or clinical perspective, whether or not that has an impact, but they like it. They, they really enjoy it and it doesn't seem to have an adverse effect unlike some of the things that we used to do such as stress debriefing which has been shown to be toxic but but actually yeah it, it is about sitting down and it is about it's also about a shared language as well isn't it I mean I I, I, I find that you know I, I have several colleagues currently who are still in uniform and I know that if we can, you know, we speak about experiences and I, you know, I, I make no pretensions. I've, I've never served in any military nor indeed wanted to, but have worked very closely with them. And, you know, there's a common language there. If I can say, oh, it was, yeah, it was a bit emotional. They know exactly what I mean. And we, we nod and, and we move on. And then we know that if we want to talk about it, we can talk about it. And that's not in a clinical setting. That's not in a medicalised setting. That's just in a kind of normal setting. And I think that's got to be the first line. That's got to be the first line of sort of defence and, and, and ultimately prevention and giving people that time. Because you don't know. This is the thing. Let's face it. We all, none of us know if, if something's wrong until it's too wrong. You know, it's it's like the Monty Python um, sketch, isn't it? It is just but a scratch until you've, you know, you've got no arms and no legs. You know, psychologically, we're exactly the same. No, no, I'll push through it. I'll push through it. It's fine. Yeah, it's just, you know, I'm just I'm just a bit wired. Yeah, I, I love it. I love it. Actually, you know what? Yeah, a bit of a bit of love and a, a, a few beers and, and a chat might go some way, uh, uh, you know, nipping things in the bud before it's before it's to be. I mean, you you get it you you increasingly work solo you know that the days of working in a team have gone um the days of working in the same team over and over again have gone you know often you just bomb burst back to wherever you've all come from yeah way, that's that's the sort of weirdest thing isn't it that you're in these situations often with almost total strangers or people you're kind of you know on nodding terms with mm. and you'll go through these you know bizarre or traumatic incidents with them and then you see them six months later and you kind of nod at each other. Oh, hi, how are you? Yeah, good. 
and that's it. You know, it's really bizarre. Whereas, like you say, that yeah. it's very rare these days. Although it does still happen, but it's very rare you find people who work as a team over and over and over again. You know, where you do build that bond um, of sort of friendship and, and trust. And actually, I think build. I don't know about you, but I think maybe it's something that I had to develop being a freelance and the, you know I kind of flitted in when nobody better was available so you know, let's let's give Gav a call um, and you know more often than not I, you know it, it took a few years and it took a few years of doing you know one day jobs two week jobs three month jobs on location at, at, at times and actually learning what the sort of process was so I always described it as emotional speed dating you know, hi, my name's Gavin. Here's what you need to know about me. I'm terrified of bats, whatever. You know, I swear I swear a lot when I'm stressed, but don't worry about it. It's when I go silent that you've got to really worry. You know, you tell me all your problems, bish, bash, bosh, let's get on with it. You know, and actually there was this kind of common language of going, right, you know, and, and the time to do that got shorter and shorter and shorter. And you find yourself doing it, you know, in between the, the you know, the the airport and whatever your first location was. So, yeah, I, you know, and I think those are skills. And I think those are skills that, sadly, I think they're necessary. I think the landscape has changed, but, you know, they're skills that can be taught. Let's face it, you know, half, half this job is just not being a dick or pretending not to be a dick and getting on with people. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'll try. That's a very different um, industry, but we we can talk about that another time. You know, uh, <laughs> needs must. Uh, yeah, quite. But yeah, I, I yeah I, I do, and I, it, it is difficult. And you know, I think we can all hark back to the the glory days and say, oh, it was so much better X number of years ago. But you know, I also think there were a lot more messed up people X years ago. We just didn't know about it, or. You know the drink. The drinking was normalised, or the the violence and the multiple marriages were never sort of questioned. I'm not saying that everyone whose marriage is broken down is damaged, obviously, but you know what I'm saying that it was just kind of seen as an occupational hazard. And let's face it, you know, friends and family get the brunt of this as well. They've got to deal with us when we when we come home from places, and coming home might just be the office half an hour down the road. But my goodness, what you've done in that in that time, fairly, fairly hardcore. And maybe other people don't necessarily understand it. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I know you're not a doctor, so, you know, mm. feel feel free to dodge some of these questions. Or Unless unless there's anyone out there who'd love to fund a PhD, in which case, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely open, absolutely open to being bought. My day rate is very reasonable. <laughs> But I mean, what would your advice be for anyone listening to this who thinks, ah, you know what, maybe, you know, maybe I have got PTSD or maybe I still haven't really dealt with, you know, those things I saw, you know, five years ago in Iraq or, or whatever it might be. I mean, and this doesn't have to be official medical advice, you know. No, sure. No, I, I mean, I think it's in a way it's common sense, but it, it's also very difficult to do. We need to speak to each other. We need to talk to each other. You know, I have a very good friend that had a, has had a very public um, experience with, with being treated for, for PTSD. And they told me that when they, if you like, went very public with it, four or five people came out of the woodwork and said, can I, um, can I have a chat with you? Who, who, who did you speak to? Who did you? So I think the first thing is speaking to people. If you know, if you're working for an organisation, there are there should be employee assistance programmes. Um, they might not be great, 
but they're a start. Um, the you know committee to protect journalists and unions provide help. Um, there's a big um, move by the Dart Centre, who are based um, in America, but have an offshoot in London, who look after Europe and Australia, who look after Asia Pacific, um, who deal not just in the uh, traumatising of journalists, but also how we report trauma. So as an aside, it's quite interesting that I think sometimes our reporting is very adversarial we um want we want answers why are you lying to me we want answers that approach isn't necessarily appropriate for a family who have just lost uh, a loved one and that sounds logical to say that but sometimes we forget it so you know some of their advice is you know don't respond with i understand when you're speaking to a parent who's lost a child in a terrorist attack because you don't understand unless you've been through it. Just, you know, so the, the language is quite important. So there's lots of there's lots of help out there. And also, you know, PTSD is... It is like any other mental illness. It is like any other disorder in that there is lots of help out there. So in the UK, there are NHS pathways for PTSD as there is depression. Go and see your GP, tell them, you know, just it's about accessing help. And some people find some forms of therapy more helpful than others. So in the UK, there's a lot about uh, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, um, which is a modification of CBT that people might be familiar with around things like depression and anxiety. And um, there's also something called EMDR. Um, uh, don't move on because what does that mean? The, the, the so that e EMDR um, is um, I move. Now, let me remember what this is. <laughs> That's the shocking thing. Um, I movements. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So basically, it's, yeah, EMDR is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And it is a, it's very strange. Basically, it is reliving the experience in your mind and describing how you're feeling and, and what you can sense and really imagining that you're back there whilst moving your eyes side to side. And ultimately, nobody knows why it works. Um, there's a whole load of stuff about, is it about disrupting certain parts of the brain? Is it allowing you to reassimilate memories? But ultimately, it's, you know, it's, it can be done following a practitioner's finger side to side or lights or whatever. Nobody knows why it works, but it appears to work for some people. Um, and it's very strange. But it works. Interestingly, it's now in the UK not recommended for um, military veterans with combat-related PTSD. So that's that's quite an interesting thing. Um, CBT for specific symptoms. So, you know, if you're having um, depressive episodes, then maybe you, you get that fixed. Um, and maybe you get different treatment for, you know, not being able to sleep. Um, and there are some drugs as well. CBT is cognitive behavioural therapy, so it's the most common and popular form of talking therapy. Um, and the idea behind the that... Classic sort of, you know, uh, shrinks couch type stuff. No, it's not. That, that, that would be sort of far more psychoanalytical and psychodynamic. So CBT is based on this idea that um, you have your cognitions, you have thoughts... Um, that you can control and you can essentially reprogram. You have behaviours um, that you can 
control and reprogram. So, uh, you know, I don't know if you're sort of compulsively, you know, smoking, for example, um, or, or switching lights on and off or constantly, you know, scratching or, or, or whatever. Um, and then you have this idea of your emotions and your emotions you can't control, but they're all linked together. So by changing the way you think about things and the way that uh, you behave, um, you can reduce your anxiety and your behavioural response. So if you are, you hear a car backfiring and you immediately think, oh my God, I'm back in Iraq and I'm being shot at. How do we change that? Uh, how do we change that thought um, by making sure that you, you, you know that you're not back in Iraq, for example, or your behaviour. So you suddenly jump behind a, a hedge or you become incredibly anxious or you don't go out of the house or whatever. So it's about, it's about sort of taking control over some of those um, uh, maladaptive responses that you might have as a, as a response and and CBT is modified in a number of ways for different things so there's there's a subset called trauma focused CBT which is 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 designed for people with with PTSD um, specifically so but really I mean it's about talking with people isn't it I mean ultimately what you and I are saying is talk to folk talk to folk afterwards talk to your colleagues go for a cool glass of water, because obviously nobody would recommend going for a beer because alcohol is bad. But yeah, go for a beer, you know, um, go for a run. Physical fitness, eating well, all those things give yourself a bit of a fighting chance. And let's face it, you know, the lifestyle's pretty crap at times. We're jet lagged, we're tired, we're working on stress, we eat, you know. Biscuits and coke. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you live off carbohydrate and sugary drinks. So... You know, and you go, my goodness, it's been 10 days and I've not had a hot meal and I've not sat down and I've not rested. I've not found a way of switching off. Um, you know, there's all this stuff about mindfulness and, you know, relaxation. All that. If that works for you, then, then fine. But you've got to find a way of kind of keeping yourself safe and not waiting until it's too late. And I think that's all part of it, isn't it? It is. Well, that's all for today, guys. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I found it really interesting. I learned a lot. Gavin, as you can see, is very, very intelligent and, and has a lot of really good things to say. So thanks to, thanks to him for joining in. He is on Twitter, actually, so do look him up. In the meantime, please feel free to share this podcast and also to comment as it really helps and helps other people to find it. There, there are many other podcasts that I'm aware of that focus on news and documentary filmmaking. So please do share. All right, guys, have a fantastic week and I'll speak to you soon.